Is there a film of yours that you feel maybe you'd like to kind of um, recommend to people who may not have seen it? I've, you know, are there any sort of unsung gems from your filmography that you kind of wish more people had a chance to see? Yeah, and that is Inside Moves, which is something I love dearly. Everybody's got a story why their picture wasn't successful. I wish people had seen it. And I'm joined by my usual co-host, Matt Brothers. Hello. And Paul Wilson-Morris. Hello, everybody. Regular listeners will know that we are, of course, the Star Trek podcast from a non-Trekky perspective. Uh, But back in 2017, we were given the opportunity to interview the late, great Richard Donner. And despite the fact that he has no connection to Star Trek whatsoever, really... It's Richard fucking Donner. So, of course, we had to take the opportunity to interview him, and we're very glad we did, because it was a fantastic hour and a half, and that made for a fantastic episode, which you can currently hear right at the top of our podcast feed, because we re-released the episode in tribute to the great man himself when he sadly passed away recently. But we have a section of our podcast called Spotlight at the Movies, where we tend to analyse a film, featuring a member of Star Trek alumni either in front or behind the camera. But because Dick had passed away, we wanted to continue to pay tribute to his work by doing a very special episode focused on what he considered to be uh, one of his unappreciated or underappreciated films, Inside Moves, which doesn't have a big enough connection to Star Trek that we usually cover it. However... We kind of thought, well, we did the interview with Dick, which essentially had nothing to do with Star Trek. So fuck it. In tribute, we shall (laughs) uh, do an episode on Inside Moves because it's a really, really special movie and we wanted to give it the attention it deserves. So we'll be Also, it was what he tried to get to us. Yeah, we did try and track down a copy of Inside Moves uh, ahead of this, but it was difficult. It really is hard to obtain in the UK. Yeah, it's not available over here, unfortunately, which is, we'd really love to see it. Ah, do we have to send you a a special type of DVD, or...? We can play American. (laughs) Okay, we'll send one over to you. He wanted to send it to us, and it, because it never came to pass, it felt like unfinished business. For the last three years, I've wanted to see it uh, uh, ever since it wasn't able to be there. I was expecting a release in its time, and it has come out on Region A Blu-ray in the interim, but it still remains criminally unavailable here in the UK. And I think that's just been what, what the, the accessibility has been the reason I have not got to see it. And, and with his passing, I thought this is just... I really pushed the guys to kind of consider this episode because I really felt like it was honoring his legacy in a way of just like his wish for us i mean he might have had lots of wishes last wishes but here's one for us was that we should see <laughs> inside moves he was like lauren get inside moves the spotlight boys they can't see it 
Yeah. I still regret I never got it posted out to them. They need to oh. see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I feel this is mission accomplished, and he can he can sleep soundly tonight. Nicky, let's deal the cards out and get the game going, huh? Take one blind poker player. Are you ready? <laughs> now add a man without hands. Hey, can you use another hand over there? Another hand? Yeah, I can use two. <laughs> another who can't walk. A basketball player with one leg shorter than the other. And Rory. Who crippled himself. You got it all backwards. First you get crippled, then you try to commit suicide. <laughs> Put them all together and you have five very special guys who share a dream for one of them. What's the matter with your leg? Hey, look, man, I don't want to play you if you got something wrong. There's nothing wrong with my leg. Come on, How they make that dream come true come is the story of Inside Moves. Ah! Listen, Jerry, I know you're good enough to play semi-pro ball. I'm going to loan you the money for your operation. Dear Jerry, in case you've forgotten, my name is Rory. How are you? I used to be your best friend, or so you said. Louise is a... What? I just wanted to write a friendly letter. Let me see I just, that. I tell them that you're doing a good job and how pretty you are. Thank you. No problem. Do you really think he'll come back? He has to spend some time with his dream. But what's your dream? I don't know. I'd like a girlfriend. John Savage is Rory in a Richard Donner film, Inside Moves. And you're, you're completely right because originally, of course, there was a film directed by Richard Donner on the spotlight of the movies list already, 1997's Conspiracy Theory, uh, because, of course, Patrick Stewart plays the bad guy in that movie. And we do plan on doing that as a special spotlight of the movies uh, at some point soon. Um, I really like Conspiracy Theory if it's a bit of a hidden gem but for this episode we did want to concentrate on Inside Moves because Paul was quite right it was unfinished business uh, so we're going to get into that and hopefully lots of people as a result of listening to this episode will track down Inside Moves somehow because as I say it's currently not available on any UK streaming services and it's not available on UK DVD or Blu-ray it is available in the States and we're hoping that maybe someone at a lovely UK boutique Blu-ray company like Indicator or Arrow will be listening to this episode and maybe they'll be convinced to try and get the yeah, right to release. I think this Inside movie Moves. has got Indicator written all over it. That label, you know, now in its 200th title. This feels so within their wheelhouse, Powerhouse Films. Yeah. Well, Arrow Academy I, I really as well. think it'd be a great addition Arrow. to their catalogue. So, yeah, we'll tweet the fuck out of it mm -hmm. afterwards. Yeah, 100%, 100%. I, I, I completely agree. I think Indicator would do a great job of this because I know they released Blue Collar as well, which is a kind of, you know, another, I mean, this was released in 1980, but as we're going to discover, we're talking about, I think it feels very much like yeah. the 70s. Uh, they've, they've released a lot lesser films from the same era, like uh, The Border, for example, with Nicholson and Keitel, I think uh, you know there's there's sort of films that like are questionable in their kind of critical acclaim. Whereas this, you know, 
for the few people who did see it on release really liked it. It got an Academy Award nom for, for Best Supporting Actress. It was not a badly received film, except it just didn't do anything, any business and, you know, had a very short life on VHS. And it's been, you know, it was very late in the game that it got released on DVD, in fact. So, you know, where, where I think Donna had to really push to get like, a, you know, anything out there for, you know, for people could even see it as a special edition. I think a lot of those extras are ported over to the, uh, I think it's Scorpion releasing, have done it in the US. Scorpion uh, often get referenced on just the discs, the great uh, yeah. podcast. <laughs> Brian Sauer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the, I know they're a big boutique uh, Blu-ray label in the US. Uh, so yeah, someone needs to, whoever's got the rights to release Scorpion stuff over here needs to get, get it out. Because um, yeah. so, this truly is Donna's wish, really. You know, it's the fact that he brought it up twice. He said, when we are talking about it with him, he then said, you know, I'm going to get someone to send you guys a copy so you can see it. And then as we're ending the chat to bring it up again and be like, make sure they get that copy. And then eventually, of course, we get that email from his assistant saying, fortunately, too rare for even us. Can't have it. Yeah, so that needs to be rectified. <laughs> I bet he had a few, a stack of discs. When they made, they released on DVD, he would have given, you'd have loads of copies sort of given to him. And I bet he just loved giving them out to people because I think this is like his small film, very personal. Everybody who had the big hitters already but for friends and family that you must have come across go like oh you haven't seen this movie of mine for years I, you know i did this you know he, he produced this film to kind of in his essentially break up from superman 2 so he was refired from that project in very disappointing circumstances by the producers you know unable to finish the movie and he, he retreated into this very personal story a very small scale movie and you know it meant a lot to him and i think it shows and it's and i feel like the film as I say, it came out in 1980. It feels very much a product of the late 70s, a very character-driven piece. Something very melancholy about it. It feels very Hal Ashby in its approach. It, it feels like a great drama. You could see kind of like Hoffman doing this maybe four or five years earlier in his straight time sort of era. Um, I'm really glad it came out when it did because I think it gives John Savage the lead a role of a lifetime who would, you know, hit the screen to 78 in The Deer Hunter. So he has you know, a lot of exposure. He's in amongst great big names, like De Niro, Casale. You know, he... He gets a profile from that movie, and I think he cashes in really well choosing this product with Dick Donner, who, let's bet, like, you know, his previous film is Superman the movie. His ticket's riding really high. So, you know, even though it is a small film, it's still working with a very celebrated director. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it kind of blows my mind, to be honest, that this was after superman the movie um because as we say 1980 this was released and as you say paul this was kind of a direct result of his firing from superman 2 and he actually i've got a quote here from dick uh where he said it was the smallest film i could do that was just very near and dear to me at that point and i felt this is going to take my mind totally off that as in uh kind of you know getting fired from superman 2 which we know really really hurt him we actually discussed this uh, during our interview and you could tell that even in 2017 he was still kind of hurting from that experience like you know i don't think he ever quite got over it and the catharsis of like the donna cut like in 2006 yeah, I believe, wasn't it? Yeah, like you know, had done some way to heal the wounds, but it's still, it's still very raw. Like you know, it's just I think he poured a lot into that project, and I think this is a million miles from Superman in terms of you know you're not dealing with visual effects, you're not having to go to on location particularly far. Like you know, it's it's quite centered around a few uh, sort of locations in a uh, like San Fran, Los Angeles. San Fran, yeah. Yeah, well, this is the sort of thing that I, I wish more directors would do. Obviously, the circumstances for him doing this is coming off of, like we've said, this bad animosity on Superman 2. But, you know, the idea of directors following up a big 
project, a blockbuster film, a superhero film with a more intimate drama. I think more people should go back to doing this because, you know, it really offsets the filmography in a really interesting way. I think directors come into films like this with more love for the craft and the medium as well, If especially if they've had a bad time on the big film just before. Get, it gives them a chance to get back to what they what they love about filmmaking and storytelling. And you can tell that, you know, the small scope of a film like this, just there's, there's just tons of great moments throughout of like human drama. And, you know, Dick was always so good at putting that on screen. And this is one without any burden or baggage in a way of a genre. You know, we've said Dick's kind of, you know, inventing superhero films essentially and the buddy cop and everything. And then this is pretty much a straight drama. And he's really ironically kind of let off the hook with it in a, in a way, like he's let off the leash a bit, I think, and um, is able to deliver something really unique. I, I think it's probably good for us to sort of do a brief synopsis mm-hmm. because it might be a lot of the listeners won't be able to kind of see this film. Yes. So Inside Moves centers around a character named Rory, played by John Savage, who, after a suicide attempt, is partially crippled. So he's in a situation where he, can, he can't walk very well. He's not confined to a wheelchair, but he's certainly affected. And of course, the emotional scars of what he's done is like it's not been really addressed. So in finding himself in a rundown apartment post his you know very long recovery, uh, which is sort of you know skipped over, he finds himself in a neighbourhood bar and just needs to get a drink. And as he finds there, there's a lot of a lot of other people who are disabled, or in very different ways, but have also kind of uh, have kind of bonded over their shared sort of like outsider status. And he finds a way of finding a bit of a family with these with these other men. And he straight up a friendship with the barman Jerry, played by David Morse in his feature debut. Jerry's got a, a bad leg, but actually is extremely talented in the field of basketball and could be an amazing player if he was able to afford an operation. The story really centers around that friendship, you know, the ins and outs of that friendship as Jerry gains, you know, once he's able to go to get his leg uh, working again, finds success quickly. And, and I believe that, you know, Rory, played by John Savage, you know, sees this as an opportunity for like build, bringing up everybody in the bar to like, you know, lift their spirits, but it doesn't often transpire that way. Story of humor. No, I never thought about it before. Uh, it must be tough being a bigot if you're blind. I know. I had to give it up. <laughs> a story of love. I saw Jerry tonight. So? I told him that you and I were lovers. A story of friendship. Why don't you come by Max's and see the guys? I mean, you know, they love you. It hurts them. You're never around. You never come I by. I will, Rory. To Max's. To Max's. Rory is just... A bar. I'm talking about my life. It's not just a bar. Carry its family. But most of all, Inside Moves is about the spirit of winning. Hey! It'll make you feel good again. And that ain't bad. I had no idea what kind of film this was because I hadn't read anything about it. And even if you look at the poster, the poster's an odd duck in a way. It looks like it could be a, like a Western, like McCabe and Mrs. Miller or something, or, or like a period thing because David Morse has got his flat cap on in, in the poster and it's all very Drew Struzan-esque. I had no idea this was a basketball drama. It's <laughs> like, what the hell? I really like that poster. Yeah, just the issue because mm. it's got Rory on it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very strewn. It's this beautiful poster, and you don't realise the significance of the uh, of the fist pump until you see the movie. Uh, yeah. 
and you know, when you see that, it really does pay off. You're like, I love that supposed to <laughs> Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. But I, I was the same as you, Matt. I, I had no idea what this was about going mm-hmm. in, apart from, I, I'd heard kind of whisperings of it being a sports drama, but apart from that, I didn't really have any idea. And obviously, once I started watching it, I was like, oh, is this a sports drama? Like, I think... I was almost like about half an hour in. I was like, oh, when's the sport coming to this then? If this is a sports drama, like, um, but let's talk a bit about the opening scene because the opening scene is an absolute cracker. I I was really blown out by the opening scene, really shocked because as Paul kind of laid out in his uh, synopsis, uh, the film opens with Rory attempting suicide. And immediately the first thing I thought was, holy shit. It's the opening of Lethal Weapon. I think yeah. it's interesting that both films start with somebody falling from a high building, but I think that's where the similarities end, because in this movie, what's shocking about it is is Rory has this very singular purpose as he strides into this office building. He ascends the, the, the elevator. He doesn't catch like he, people around him. He's just the way he kind of like avoids their eye contact. If he's seeing for the first time, I mean, you know, I knew what the plot was. So I was like, I knew what maybe was coming around the corner. But I think for the first time viewer, you're kind of like, it's very shifty the way he's acting. When he reaches the floor and he goes to the, you know, um, a window, opens it, there's very little hesitation. There's no no second to sort of reconsider. It happens very quickly. And I think that's what's so gut-wrenching about it. It's like, there's there's no question about this man wants to die. And he's saved by, um, well, he, I think it's false, partially broken by a tree, which slows the descent, and then he lands on a, on a Pontiac, uh, which becomes a kind of a, a joke later on. So, yeah, it's really hard-hitting opening. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it looks you know, like you're... a really real stunt as well, and especially when he goes through the tree as well. It's like, woof. Yeah, and I think, you know, immediately when he's in recovery and you're, st- and you're seeing him sort of like a broken man, he re- emerges from hospital now bearded he didn't go he wasn't bearded when he went in uh, i felt such compassion for him he's not really had any dialogue to speak of so far in the movie yet his face you just you kind of feel like such compassion for him i just wanted to kind of give him a hug or something like that mm. and it was it's not very long before his first scene in uh, max's bar you say come to max's bar it'll be the best move you've made is the tagline it, it feels a bit like a support group in that they've identified somebody else broken and the the bartender helps him to the, gets him in the get involved with the other people very quickly. I I, re- I really greatly moved by uh, like that, and uh, you know how how supportive they are almost immediately to him, seeing like another, another mm. broken soul or wounded person. Well, they kind of break and his balls a it, bit first, and then but immediately then like you know you're one of us, it's fine. Yeah, I think when he delivers some lines there about that he attempted suicide. And he's saying out loud, I'm just moved immediately. It was an incredible beginning to the movie. And I think it's really good how they don't, they hold back any inkling about why he did it. Because that's not the point. It becomes a a point of interest, like really near the end. But it's Mm. like, I'm really glad there was nothing at the beginning to sort of indicate, you know, what get drove him to this point. You don't prejudge him. You just see this is a man suffering. Yeah, well, they, they and you really empathize with him because you're not like, oh, you should get over it, all this, that, and the other. Yeah, I like how they pace out the uh, emotional outpouring from Rory. He is someone who kind of, once the beginning has happened, he almost kind of disappears into the background a bit where it becomes a bit more about Jerry, David Morse. 
And he's just kind of like, Rory's just kind of carrying on with stuff, having done this shocking act at the start. And it's not until the second half and later on that he begins to kind of confront stuff within him himself in quite a few scenes of like speeches and like long monologues from him where a lot of it all comes out. And it's so much more powerful like coming out in the back half than him maybe beginning the movie. Mm. Like you can imagine it, him meeting the guys in the bar and having a big explanation of here's why I did the thing and stuff. But instead, you know, none of that happens. So that when he's asking Jerry later on, like, you know, you never even asked me why I tried to kill myself. You're kind of like, oh yeah, that hasn't really come up explicitly from anybody. Well, yeah, let's talk about a bit about John Savage then, because I mean, I, I think his performance in this is such a beautiful performance, like really amazing. I was kind of a bit blown away by him, to be completely honest, to the point where it was one of those situations where I was like, oh, why wasn't he a bigger actor than, you know, he was? Don't get me oh, wrong. Yeah. I know, obviously, he's in Deer Hunter, which is kind of, you know, held up by a lot of people. And I saw he was in a couple of Malick films, actually, Thin Red Line and New World. And he's had lots of credits. I mean, you know, he's, uh, I think he's got something like 242 credits on the IDB. So he's obviously, you know, worked yeah. plenty, mm-hmm. but, but he's not a huge he- star. No, I, I, I'm really saddened by it too because I mean, I'm sure he is and he's quite happy with how things turned out, but I, I, I thought there was more to him. I mean, we talk about him in Malik. I mean, Ben Chaplin was in those two movies, but try and point him out, you know, as the thing that John Savage is just sort of, he's the, like the 12th biggest star in that movie. It just mm-hmm. goes to show like how, you know, unfortunately you kind of lost in the in the big scheme of things there. But, you know, he was in Salvador, like one of the Stones movie yes. opposite James Woods. He was a very good photojournalist, kept part in that. I remember that film, quite enjoying that. I find it difficult to watch now because of James Woods. But um, yeah, here, he's giving so much in, the, in in his performance. He's fully invested physically. And also, it reminds me a little bit, you know, how, what's his name, Frazier's dad? John Mahoney. Mahoney. You know, has to kind of give a completely physical performance. There's that, but also there's a lot of ticks that he has that kind of betray his low self-esteem. And I think that's it's really kind of, you know, endears me to him. And also, you know, it's not overdoing it. I think it's very much like it feels really lived in. And they don't, you know, don't go away easily. I think that's the thing. It's like he does carry these things through the film. And you know there's still some healing to be done as well. And I think he puts other people first through the film. And I think that's, you know, another sort of great character trait that kind of gets explained later on towards the end. Characters like this on screen, isn't it just a rarity that a character with depression and low self-esteem is given a, a story like this? This is a human issue. This is like an endemic problem in society. Yet how many films do you have that kind of deal with it in a kind of such a moving and, you know, not judgmental manner as this? It's the film is extremely well handled by Dick Donnelly. I think it's really reflective of the man himself and what all come, has come out since his death from people who have had, you know, interactions with him, that he's such a kind soul. And I think that's why he kind of maybe really gravitated towards this material particularly because it does embody like a lot about what we know Dick to be like. And yeah, I love the whole bar dynamic of the people where it feels part like the kind of veterans bars, part the gang in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest uh, and also Cheers. It gave me a lot of a big Cheers vibe because of the early 80s setting and the kind of bar and, you know, David Morse being like the Ted Danson type behind there. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it really feels like the place where everybody knows your name and uh, there'd be Norm just sat there as well. So that was, uh, yeah, really good little ensemble of those guys. It feels like a really unsentimental film. That's the, that's the thing. It doesn't slip into Capra-esque, you know, not saying Capra's a bad thing, it's just wrong for the era. Mm. Uh, you know, a Capra worked in its time and it's and it's timeless for that. 
sometimes that sentimentality cannot be transposed to something a bit more cynical age, like the early, late 70s, early 80s. And that's why I think it's such a product of the 70s, because it's like a human drama with, with people with real human frailties. Like Jerry, well, he's a very flawed human being. And how many people have we kind of met in our lives that actually, you know, you think you're kind of like on an equal par with somebody that like is a mate of yours, but then you realise potentially there that you're giving a lot more than you're getting back. And, you know, you'll, you feel a bit used in that situation. Or people might go, oh, I've been Jerry before. I've been asking so much of my friends. I've been putting so much on them. I'm not there for them. When they need me, I'm kind of like a bit AWOL. I think these are real kind of people that we're being, we're being introduced to here. And I think the female character uh, as well, this is Louise, played by Diana Scarwood, uh, becomes Rory's kind of girlfriend, and uh, but also kind of hooks up with Jerry later on. I think this film doesn't, judge her for her hesitancy to enter into a relationship with Rory. She is not, she's a bit unsure of herself, what that means. And it doesn't judge her necessarily for hooking up with Jerry, who presents quite a different outcome for yeah. her. You know, he's a lot more sure of himself. You know, he's got a lot of magnetism. And I'm really glad the film doesn't paint her to be some awful person for like having a, a doubt there. Because again, because we got to know Rory, we understand if he acts a bit strangely. If it's been Louise's story, there's going to be reasons why she acts away. She could have been really treated really badly in the past. She might be really difficult like maintaining relationships. But I think the film doesn't kind of like resort to stereotyping these people where it's kind of like good, bad. There's mm. so much grey area here. Yeah, totally. I've, I really felt that in her performance. She really moved me because she played it so well. Because, you know, there's that kind of brutal scene. You know, her and Rory go back home and she's obviously well into him. And he just it's gone way over his head and he's just saying like line after line that's like oh yeah I don't see you as a lover I see you as a friend and he's saying stuff like you know it's not like I lie at, lie awake at night horny for you or anything and you can see her like heartbreaking Ralph Wiggum style like in slow-mo and she just kind of like holds it in and like gives him a little look and then rather than gets all melodramatic and explodes and has a go at him she just kind of like carries on with a bit of a joke and does invite him in for coffee and stuff and keeps it together. And then not long after that, you know, she's saying, you know, actually, I do really want, want you and I do love you and stuff. And he's still playing it off, going like, oh, I love you too. Like, as a friend, she's like, no, you're not listening kind of thing. And she, that kind of emotional outpouring, you know, being so honest with somebody who just kind of isn't getting it, but without being outwardly mean, I think that's the key. I think she plays her reaction to that so well in that she knows he's not doing it to hurt her but it's still a hurtful result for what she's hearing and I just think yeah she the way she plays that scene in a couple of looks earns her that Oscar nod that that scene is really hard because it's that thing of he believes that he is being rejected and therefore he kind of retreats tries to kind of save face and then she does reveal that obviously you know she does love him but she is still hesitant about the idea of being in a relationship with him. Because, mm. you know, Rory is uh, not only clearly a, a deep depressive, but has been physically and mentally disabled by his uh, attempted suicide. And it, it's that thing of, you know, and he, he th there's a line when he says to her about her not wanting to be with him, and he says, it's because of the way I am isn't it? And it's so, your heart fucking breaks, you know what I mean? It's just he no longer, he's got that insecurity where he no longer believes he's worthy of a woman like her at the end of the day. And because of that, yeah. you feel that's why actually she can't be with him at that stage because he doesn't 
believe that he should believe like, it himself. Her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They had to be forced together so that, that you know their relationship is kind of like um, developed in a very amusing way, where like at the Christmas dance, like you know all the other bar patrons are kind of like they know there's a little bit of attraction there, but they're kind of getting to dance together. They're making him kiss off the mistletoe. It's leading yeah. a horse to it's water. Sam and Diane I think that's thing. the thing. He's like, well, she might like him. How could she be fully into him when he doesn't love himself? Mm. And it takes the heartbreak that comes with finding out that his best friend has sort of, you know, been carrying on behind his back with her to sort of, you know, push him into a place where he kind of has a revelation mm-hmm. about like his self-worth. And that's a wonderful, I mean, we'll probably talk about the ending and I, I think if people are really want to see this for what we said so far, go and watch it now. Yeah, yeah, no, this, back is, up with us. this is spoiler filled. Um, if you can find the movie, spoiler watch attention. it because it, it's great and we don't want to yeah. spoil it for you. But I knew, I fucking knew. It's funny, I've got bits in my notes and stuff. And it shows how kind of wrapped up I was getting in this movie and the love triangle that was developing. Because I kind of almost thought on that night where she reveals that actually she does love him, but it's clearly she's hesitant. I almost kind of assumed at that point that, oh, especially because it feels very much like a 70s movie where things just kind of happen naturally. I, I kind of just felt like, oh, maybe, maybe they have got together and they are now together and we just haven't seen that cover officially. And obviously they go for dinner with Jerry and literally Jerry is proper cracking on to Louise in front of Rory. And I was like, oh no, obviously they haven't got together and everything like that. And I was just like, mate, how can you do this? Like clearly Rory is like desperately in love with her. And, I, I, and Jerry by this point, obviously he's become like a sports star. And you can see his whole demeanour has changed because of course, like earlier on, Jerry actually has quite a tragic story himself where he has been kind of disabled himself. He's got his, uh, you know, leg injury. And also he has his very troublesome girlfriend, Anne, who kind of, you know, is clearly a drug addict and kind of essentially gets him into conflict with Duke from the Rocky films, uh, who turns up as the bad guy in this, who has some guys beat him up pretty savagely earlier on. And we, we've kind of seen him at his lowest and now he's kind of come out of that. And he's kind of, you know, he's in the sharp suit. He's obviously, you know, he's doing the sport on the regular. He's become a bit of a star. And you can see he's now got that newfound confidence. And he's kind of going to abuse that a bit. And you're just like, oh, mate, it fucking killed me. Because I knew it was going to happen. I knew she was going to turn around and say, oh, I'm with Jerry now. And I, I, I yeah, oh, man, it really broke my heart, I've got to say. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, what do people make of that subplot then with um, with Jerry and Anne, like who's, you know, resorting to prostitution to feed a drug habit? He's trying to save her from the streets, but is blind to kind of like, you know, he does end up like um, kicking her out there, doesn't he, actually? Well, he For a does long time, and then takes sort of... her back, yeah. Mm. I mean, I just yeah, saw it yeah, as yeah. one of those classic cases of you've got a partner who's bad news, essentially, uh, but you are so wrapped up in them that you, can't help but keep yeah kind of coming back to them you know it goes back and forth quite a bit because there's a bit where he really kind of breaks down about like how he's spent all his money trying to help her and she's worse and he's gone nowhere and then like the next scene you see him he's just having a barbecue with her kind of thing he's back just yeah. bad habits you know and i think that's also it kind of like it does underscore like perhaps why he went as extreme cutting them all off as he did because he's leaving that life behind a lot of like heartbreak you know occurred while he was working at the bar you know, not being able to afford the operation kind of stuck where he was at. But once he gets it, he doesn't want to look back. And I think it's reminding him of a kind of like, you know, quite dark time for him. So, you know, that does 
doesn't excuse his behaviour later, but it does explain it to some extent. It doesn't feel like a film, really, where there's any bad guys, apart from uh, Tony Burton, uh, Duke from the Rocky movies, as the kind of pimp <laughs> kind of guy. Like, apart from him, it doesn't really feel like there's any proper bad guys in this film. Everyone is flawed and does kind of bad things, but he's, he's ultimately redeemable. Yeah. I definitely thought Jerry was a yeah. bit of an asshole for a lot of this. Like, having, having a go at uh, Rory for, like, not spending his money on fixing his problem so he can just go and have a basketball career. Because Rory's like, oh, we could spend it on the bar and stuff. He's like, no, fix my leg. And they're having a big old strop. And I was like, you prick. And then, of course, that whole thing, that a lot that's very relatable. And a lot of people experience with friend groups, I think, where someone gets a bit too big and they kind of disappear and shun everybody. That's very much part of his journey in this film. And I think that's what's done so well. Yeah, the, the pimping sort of C-plot comes and goes here and there. He gets a bit of a kicking at one point. Yeah, and it lead, leaves for a very funny kind of resolution at the end as well. Um, but otherwise, it's kind of, I guess that's the one attempt at uh, injecting some genuine antagonism into uh, into this otherwise quite placid story of these of these new friends. I think it shows like how Rory's grown as well. Essentially, in the last scene, the pimp is at this basketball stadium and is kind of going down the stairs. And, you know, he sticks out a leg and, like, it trips him up uh and you know that it causes him to like obviously break a few bones that kind of thing but it was like it's catharsis of what he's put poor jerry through early in the film and well like you know the fact that he, he took that like a, a action just to show like you know oh he's uh well like, i love the things some, that the you know, freeze frame fist pump that's on the posters like yeah i fucked that guy up i kicked him down the stairs there should have been a post credits everyone gets a game where literally suddenly it cuts and tony furter's in the bar with all those guys as well be like oh and then yeah like, part yeah, of the family there. now get the coronas out <laughs> yeah, exactly after like being yeah. crippled for life I mean, it was a great stun. Like, yeah. the fall down those steps was brutal. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he must have, like, broken his spine like, in three yeah, places. Yeah, because it's, it's actually, that's the thing. It is a hardcore fall. It's not like, it's not really, like, a joke fall. It is like, yeah. he must be properly her. Can't, like, <laughs> yeah. can't get up. And literally, yeah, you're right. In terms of, it does show that Rory has grown in confidence. Because at the end of the day, he found Jerry beaten black and blue afterwards by that guy's fucks. And that's really... I mean, I found his beating really disturbing because you, you hear it, you don't see it. And he, Jerry, is yeah. literally begging for them to stop. Like, it's not like he's yeah. kind of, you know, going down fighting or resisting. He's oh, literally and, begging. And it's sick as well because, like, the, the pimp, Tony Burton, like, as Lucius, makes Amy Wright's character of Anne listen to it. Like as well, she she can only hear him getting beaten at his pleas. I think it's just love affairs. Like you know, I'll oh, just quiet down, baby. He's just so sinister. Like this is kind of like a, a warning to her if she ever kind of strays again. Mm, mm. Like, he's just capable of these things. It's just it's really sick. So I mean, he he does deserve his comeuppance. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, I think all of us at a certain point in this movie thought, oh no, Jerry is going to go full dickhead, isn't he? In this, but you you do kind of forget that he has gone through his own really traumatic experience, not only having his injury, so therefore kind of you know stopping his potential career, but also he goes into a deep depression after that beating. Like he can't leave the house. He's kind of literally hiding away in his bath and everything like that. Literally just won't won't kind of go out or anything like that. And he's you know it's Rory who actually says you know we should basically 
get these guys back. Like, you know, and he can't do it. He's really, he's he's like, you feel like he becomes like agoraphobic like as a result of like what happened. And he has to kind of be pulled out of it by one of the basketball players who comes along, who he actually has a game with earlier on in the film, who sees the talent in him and comes along, kind of pulls him out of it. Yeah. And we kind of forget that. We kind of forget that he went through all that when we see him acting like a bit of a dick later on. I think uh, it's time to talk about the the showdown between Jerry and Rory. I think this is the, you know, Rory basically asserting himself for the first time in the film. And he he says, you know, all all my life I felt like I was dunked on. This is the first time I feel like I'm fighting back. I could even kill myself. Like, what a joke. I can't even die. But interesting, you never asked me why, Jerry, but I'm going to tell you why. It was nothing like the girl I loved being stolen by my best friend. Nothing that romantic. It was just because of nothing. I just felt like nothing. And you wouldn't understand because you've always had people like me to tell you were something. But I'm not nothing. I'm something. I'm big. And he goes, big! Bigger than you. And uh, I, I love it. I think that's just an amazing Yeah, doesn't he say, oh, it's not that hard to be bigger than you as well or something? Yeah, it's, yeah no, it's not that hard to be bigger yeah. than you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. That lets him have it. That, that's yeah. what I meant, but by I think the way. When I, said, when I said, oh, they, we don't find out, I meant as in there's no reason. Like, he doesn't actually reveal, like, a, a thing. It's just clearly he was just ah, depressed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's it. There's... Well, no, I think it's, well, it's, it's more than just that. I think it's everything and nothing. I think feeling like nothing comes about from a myriad of things. I just love they didn't pin it on one of like yes. event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was just, he, you know, the weight of the world was on his shoulders. He just didn't feel worth anything. And that's a state of mind that you get to, and it's difficult to get out of. And I think that's the universality of his his mental illness is what's so appealing about this film is that, you know, it'll speak to a lot of people and give them something to kind of reflect back on and feel hopeful as well. I think it's, it's a very helpful film but it, it doesn't gloss over anything. Uh, I do think it was ahead of its time in many ways, to be honest. Like, you know, it's depiction of, of, of mental health issues. It's not in any way patronising or anything to people with physical disabilities either. It's a really progressive film in a lot, in a lot of ways and how it deals with those issues. Yeah, it gives a second acting opportunity to Harold Russell, who sort of trailblazed depictions of disabled people on film when he appeared in, like, 1946's Best Years of Our Lives where he's a disabled war veteran in the, coming home from World War II, and he has hooks for hands. These were caused by an accident whilst training in real life. But he, you know, used that as a way of kind of humanising a lot of disabled veterans coming back from the war. He earned two Academy Awards for that, one for Great Supporting Actor, and then for a kind of special award for that depiction. This is when I know I'm helpless. My hands are down there on the bed. I can't put them on again without calling to somebody for help. I can't smoke a cigarette or read a book. If that door should blow shut, I can't open it and get out of this room. I'm as dependent as a baby that doesn't know how to get anything except cry for it. And this was only a second film, 35 years later. And I've, I think I spoke to you guys separately about like how I felt that his acting style has actually kind of really matured. And I think under the direction of like Donna, you know, it feels very natural. And so, you know, his part in this is really, really good as well. It's just the style of like the 40s movies are kind of like a bit more staid. Not to say that the acting in that movie is bad. It's just very different. And it's just great to see he kind of like could adjust kind of the, the material. Well, I was going to say the guy I thought was really good uh, amongst that kind of little bunch of barflies was Bert Remsen, who is the guy with the big shades on all the way through the mm. uh, film. 
And I thought that guy was awesome, like, in it, really, because he has the big blow-up. When Jerry turns up at the bar, and basically because he's feeling guilty, because he's, you know, abandoned them, he's betrayed Rory, he turns around and says that he's not going to play his big basketball game, basically. So, because he feels so guilty that he's going to kind of reject that and kind of come back to them, because he doesn't feel he's worthy of it anymore after his dressing down from Rory. And Bert Renson explodes at him and says, like, you know, no, you are going to do that game. And then he shouts, because you're not going to fuck around with our dream. And, like, it's so, yeah, so powerful, that moment when he uh, performs that, because it's that thing of they're all invested, because he's the one who kind of, you know, they're all these kind of, like, disabled barflies, but Jerry's the one who's shown them that, you know, it's possible to get out and, and back in the saddle and kind of, like, be successful. And now they what they do what... That's the whole reason they wanted to kind of follow him and come to the game. They wanted him to come back because they're invested in his journey. And, you know, that's such a, yeah, beautiful turnaround. And the fact that, obviously, yeah, Jerry does get fully redeemed because it is that thing of, actually, you know, it's revealed that he... He just felt he had to kind of get away from from that life because if he didn't, he'd just feel like he, he always was that disabled guy who kind of had lost his dream and now he found it, he needed to kind of get away from that. And yeah, it's 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 really and in the end it's it's kind of you know a really beautiful pie to like friendship everything between these guys because he realizes what the important things are. Yeah, and friendship, male bonding is a theme we see Donna revisit in Leaf Weapon. Long at last. Yeah. Why didn't they plant the bomb in Trisha's stove? <laughs> <laughs> Think of all the needless suffering could have ended right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Gonna die on the toilet, Anna. Guys like you don't die on toilets. Anyway, I'm here and I'm not planning on going just now. Okay. Let's do it. The ease by which Riggs and Murtaugh come to be depend on each other and how they become like a family that they didn't, you know, or Riggs becomes part of the Murtaugh family throughout those movies, you know, just feel like a, a longer version of like, you know, this, where you see somebody become part of this family uh, around the bar. So it's, it's, it feels like something... A theme that repeats itself later in in his work. As I said, you know, one of the reasons I talked about early for weapon early with the opening in terms of yes, uh, obviously it's a different kind of fall, but they both hit the car, and then also it made me think of Riggs because obviously Riggs is trying to commit suicide all the way through Lethal course, Weapon. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he's in a very, very dark place. And, you know, of course, Rory attempts to commit suicide a second time in this film. And, like, you know, and I. Uh, well, he doesn't. He doesn't do it. But he goes to do it. And he can't do it. And uh, at that point, I was really worried that he was just going to do it, and that was going to be the end of the film. <laughs> uh, but like you know, he, of course, yeah, rem- made me think of Riggs again. So that is a theme, definitely, that that Donna returned to uh, later on and kind of built upon um, in a kind of bigger film. And yeah, yeah I. It's one as well. Actually, it's, it's a film that, as I'm talking about it, I'm liking it more and more and more. Like I already really, really liked it uh, watching it, but talking about it with you guys, like it's making yeah, same. me like, appreciate it even there, more. I mean, you know, you wouldn't go as far as saying this is as much of like a 
drama comedy as something like uh, the Leaf Weapons are. But there are some funny moments here. Like, I love when the guy in the bar who's in the wheelchair is reading that sort of porno novel to the blind guy, and he's trying to say and spell areola, and he keeps coming out like Oreo, and it's like, they wanted to, like, grab her cookies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He also has, like, a amusing moment later on where he's, it turns out he's, like, a bigot. Because, but he's blind and doesn't realise there are black men in the car with him. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you should really think, rethink being a bugger now you're blind. <laughs> I, I, and you know, it's, it's kind of done a way that like, you know he's not really, it's kind of like a, a bit, but it was just, it was quite a funny yeah. moment. And one, like, one, of the, movie one of the possibly maybe more unintentional bits of humour, but it happens twice, so maybe it's not, is I loved at how slow on the uptake people were to notice after when Rory had shaved. Like I swear both Louise and Jerry in two different scenes have a scene where they like interact with him for a good long while and then go like, oh, you've shaved. <laughs> well, it's a choice. And, and we've got to work out why that choice is made because it's, it's obviously a choice because it happened in two yeah. scenes. And it could be that just Rory, they're just so used to him sort of slinking into the background sort mm-hmm. of like, you know, you know, on the periphery. That kind of dramatic change just goes unregistered because they're just not paying attention to him and just shows like how he is almost like nothing to people because, you know, he does, he feels nothing himself a lot of the time. I mean, it could be a little bit heavy handed, but it's sort of perhaps that's why it's there. I'm reading it like some of the criticisms of the movie and I'm like, I think a lot of it's, you know, I, okay, I, I, I do appreciate one of my initial takeaways and the film's really grown on me since, since I've watched it and thinking about it. And I'm really moved the more I think about it. But the first thing that struck me was the editing choices. Sometimes there's a lot of, like, seems to be quite big narrative leaps forward and kind of always misunderstand people's motivations, particularly with Louise later on, where she seems to be making quite a lot of choices questionably. But I think once you take a step back and go, you know, that's all there. All the reasons why people making those choices are explained. You just, perhaps things moving past you at the speed it's, it's unfolding, it's something you don't catch it. And so it feels a bit, dis- you know, disjointed. But I in, re- in retrospect, I think it is well edited and um, yeah, covers a lot of ground. This film was a 1980 release, but to me, this is a 70s movie, you know, and I kind of feel those kind of, they're very, they're very earthy and organic movies of this kind of uh, a level in the 70s, kind of like almost indie-esque films. It's like a small movie and they, they kind of just very natural and kind of move in very natural sort of ways, which which sometimes you kind of rub up against because it's so unlike standardised filmmaking where you have to see all the connective tissue of everything together. You know what mm. I mean? Like, it's, it's not classical storytelling. It's a very kind of natural kind of way of telling a story, isn't it? Definitely. I think if we're talking criticisms, I think the Anne subplot, because obviously she does come back uh, towards the end. Uh, she's quite, and now she's full on on the street. So she actually cons Rory out of some money at the end. And she says as she walks off with his money, because she basically gets him to give her $50, I think it is. And he, she walks away, she says, you're a sucker and I'm a whore. And that's just the way it is. And I was just kind of like, yeah, you know, if this movie was made now, probably her character would probably be, you know, just portrayed slightly differently, um, I think. Like, not in the sense of, obviously, you know, some people are are just bad, but I just think, you know, the way she kind of ends up, you maybe just be handled slightly, slightly differently now. I think Rory might have, like, had an opportunity to snap there at her, mm. like, you know, but he, he doesn't. And I think that shows more about him and his sort of understanding that this is somebody who's damaged. You know, she's been threatened, she's been cajoled, and, you know, she's been under the kind of, like, thumb of the pimp 
who's, you know, used violence as a kind of weapon. You know, she's somebody to be pitied, you know, and unfortunately it's, she's very difficult to support. He's seen that for himself and he's not somebody who's going to judge her for like, you know, what she is, I think. So, you know, it's just a tragic side that not everybody can be helped. I think the reason it works and the reason the film gets away with it is Rory's reaction and kind of like his handling of the character. Because like you're right, he, he's not judgmental at all. It's not even like pity. He, he just sympathizes and really, and he just kind of walks yeah, away. Sympathize, yeah. Sadly. And uh, yeah, I mean, the character Rory, I've got to say, reminded me a lot of Rocky Balboa in the original Rocky. Uh, and obviously this four years after the original Rocky came out. And he's got a very similar kind of... Because I was going to say, in terms of humour, I think Rory's character is often kind of amusing and funny. Like, he's naturally kind of amusing and mm. funny. He's got these kind of, you know, little kind of wittier sides going thing that he doesn't kind of realise uh, kind of funny quite. And it's a similar thing with Rocky. And even that, when she walks away... Like Court of Sucker, it reminded me of the scene in Rocky where he tried, where he walks the young girl home, and uh, she's like, "Screw you, creepo!" <laughs> like, <yeah>, that was <laughs> and that really reminded me of that. And there's yeah, there's a lot of uh, similarities um, between those films in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, and yeah. Sa- and saying that, old John Savage person. actually, this isn't his last basketball film. He was in a film called Three Seconds in 2017, which is a Russian basketball film set at the 1972 Munich Olympics. So that's his Rocky Four, basically. There you go, Inside <laughs> Moves 2, baby. Yeah, we'll talk about John Savage, I should say, of course. There is a Star Trek connection with him, where he was in two episodes of Star Trek Voyager, playing the same character in season six and seven. Uh, so there you go. There's a little Star Trek connection with the lead yeah, actor it's, of it's, the film. Yeah, it's a really good two-parter, where he's the captain of like the Equinox, which is a, a ship that's also been sort of flung into the Delta Quadrant, you know, given essentially the same situation as Voyager, like Voyager wasn't alone in that scenario, except he, he portrays the dark version of if Janeway had compromised on her morals earlier about what it would take to get home. Take the shields offline and recharge the emitters. That'll bring them up to full power. The charging cycle takes 45 seconds. We'll be vulnerable. We'll be dead if we don't get the shields back up. Arm yourselves! It's sort of like the mirror image and I think it pulls it off in a sort of you know in a, in a Voyager way which is you know good but like there's more to the concept more can be done with it and there was in Battlestar with Ronald D. Moore who also used the same idea there with the Pegasus and that was a lot better realised I was literally <laughs> about to say it sounds like Pegasus from Battlestar which is an amazing arc in Battlestar, so fucking good but back to Inside Moves should we like wrap up with final thoughts yeah. Okay, do you want to go first, Paul? Well, I, I, I just say I'm really glad this came off. Like, uh, we were able to all see this movie. It being as good as it did just really helped me kind of like, it was very, it was cathartic as well, just to sort of, you know, have that finality, you know, after kind of hearing the awful news with, with Dick Donner passing, I think it was just a, a nice way to sort of, you know, tip of the cap to the, the great man. And I just feel like uh, it's such a criminally underseen film. I hope this episode does enable some people to sort of know about it to begin with, to go then seek it out. And, I, you know, it'd be just wonderful if we could get a, a release in the UK that can make it a bit more accessible. Mm-hmm. It absolutely will play now. There's nothing in this film that dates it. It may be like an early 80s movie, but the, but the human interactions and, and, uh, and the drama is as relevant now as it was then. And there just isn't this kind of movie made. I don't, yeah. feel, I don't see this kind of movie being made at the moment. And it's a shame. So it does fill a gap that does exist in storytelling. Matthew? 
I was really drawn in by this, like, because, you know, that's a hell of an opening with the jumping off the roof. And having no idea what it was, I thought nothing's really shortchanged. Even if we say, you know, maybe the pimp stuff is, is the low-hanging fruit of just having a bit of a baddie in there, it still, it still adds some really good tension and drama with the characters we know. And yeah, all the characters in the bar and Louise and everything going on with her as well, it just it just makes for like a lot of really emotional drama happening within this kind of setting of this of this bar and of, of Jerry being the one to kind of have a shot at something again. And that idea of people who are all sort of in the same boat having somebody to rally around and not wanting that person that you're rallying around to be a dick. Because it's like, you know, you, this, you're doing this for all of us as well. It's not just you. We need to to show that, you know, we're, we are something and we can succeed uh, after the fact, after, you know, like life-changing injuries and, and whatever's um, have happened to us. And I think that's a really good sort of push and pull between wanting to see him do well uh, right around the time that he starts getting a bit of a dick. And so it's like, you know, screw you for a while. And it kind of ties it all in really nicely. And I think, you know, for a post-blockbuster movie and, and pre a lot of his other successes, this is a great period in his filmography to slot this one in. And, you know, it is a shame that more people haven't seen it for all the reasons we've said. And it's an easy one to recommend, I think, because, you know, it does have that 70s feel, as, as Liam said, and it doesn't, yeah, it hasn't hasn't really dated or faded at all. It's, it's very, very fresh still, especially in some of the key emotional scenes between between the leads there so i'd say definitely check it out you know it's a really really high four star for me yeah i i, I agree with everything that's been said you know i think it's a really really great drama yeah the the, the main uh, two performances um from john savage and dave morse uh, are really fantastic their whole relationship i think is really fascinating and real you know, I, I think the way it all kind of wraps up is, is really beautiful in the end. I kind of love that that they both kind of get to walk away with their dignity. You know, Rory is kind of more confident and, you know, is, is happy in his relationship with Louise. And Jerry, I really thought when Rory got together with Louise, Jerry was going to be maybe a dick about it, but he isn't. He kind of accepts it. And he goes on to achieve his dreams, everything like that, in a different way. And they can kind of celebrate in each other that moment at the end where they finally look at each other. And, you know, Rory has taken down the guy who caused Jerry such hurt. And they realise that, you know, actually they, they found a real mutual respect for each other by the end. And I think that's really beautiful. And just John Savage's incredible performance. It's worth watching for his performance alone. And he deserved a bigger career off this movie. I think if this film mm -hmm. had been uh, seen by more people, I think that he would have had a bigger career after this film. And yeah, I, I just think it's really, it's a really quietly powerful film. And it deserved to be seen by more people. I agree that more directors should do this after going like, you know, I mean, that's the thing, Superman the movie, this is, uh, well, it's comparable to Joss Whedon making Much Do About Nothing after he did Avengers. Uh, this is a better film than Much Do About Nothing, but it's... Uh, and Dick was a better person. Yes, yeah, yeah Dick was. <laughs> Dick clearly was a much better person than uh, Whedon has turned out to be, sadly. <laughs> Um, but I do think more, you know, more directors should do that, should go from making a gigantic film to a genuinely smaller movie that really... And I don't mean, like, there's a lot of directors who do do a smaller 
film and what they mean by smaller is like 50 million or something like that and it's just kind of like you know but it's just not got special effects in it or whatever like whereas this is a this is the proper this is the real deal like like dick said it's a, a smaller movie as he could have made uh, a complete retreat from car blockbuster filmmaking and that really shows me there's a real purity to that but yeah, I yeah I really loved it, and uh, I I want to see it again on a really nice print. Frankly, I, I say I, I appreciate this is like a little off topic as it's episode. So if you've made it this far, thank you for listening. I think it's uh, it's really been great to share this sort of underseen gem with you. So I hope you have a chance to see, seek it out too. Yeah, I really hope so. Seek it out or petition Indicator or Arrow or one of those fucking companies, Eureka Masters of Cinema, to fucking bring this film out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, the disc exists the transfer exists it just needs to just be somebody to step up and release it that's all yeah that's the thing um, I think it's the, the, the transfer yeah. exists and it shouldn't be that hard you know someone just needs to call Scorpion up and go right can we have that scan please let's release it yeah. so you and know. if, if yeah. someone needs yeah. to capitalise on the death of somebody then so be it you know put it put it out <laughs> yeah. as like tribute tribute release. edition yeah that'll I'll get that, some sales uh, come on Dick Donner's biography you've got probably like shop and price you know because i bet that's out print oh this yeah 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 so uh, i've actually got it right next to me so this is yeah. you're the director you figure it out the life and films of richard donner by james christie uh which is dick's biography which i read uh in the lead up to us interviewing him there is parts of in this about inside moves as well uh, so there is extra information in here he did compare it to capra and rocky a little bit himself so you know there is that the, those... oh interesting he made those comparisons yes there about, is those uh... influences in there and uh, yes yeah, so this is this is good read like um definitely if you want to know more about dick's work it's well worth seeking out so um yeah check check that out so we will be back with more regular episodes of the podcast. This is a bit of a side quest, but, you know, we felt like it was very well deserved to go down this avenue. And it, and who knows? Maybe we'll do it again. Maybe we'll cover more movies, kind of, you know, off topic from the main kind of Star Trek Connections uh, base camp. Maybe we will return to another movie uh, that's not got as big a Star Trek connection to it if people really enjoy this episode. Uh, but we will certainly cover Conspiracy Theory uh, as part of Spotlight the Movies officially at some point soon. Until then, you can find Spotlight at Spotlight Pod on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook uh, if you want to hear more from us. Please, I mean, genuinely, please do tweet Indicator, Arrow, kind of, you know, your boutique Blu-ray company of choice, uh, 101 or 88 films, uh, all of those guys. Just get on and uh, like our inevitable tweet yes. about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, get, so, you know, and just join the comments, you know, with your, with your, with your placard. There are causes worth fighting for, and this is one of them. Exactly, exactly. Get out onto the streets. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure you're fully masked and fully vaxxed when you do. So, until next time... Well, good luck. Go home to your families. And uh, trying to get inside moves out to you. We'll have a screening here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Thanks, guys. Richard. Thank you. Right. Cheers, mate. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye, mates.